Hey, everybody. It is Monday, February 12th, Super Bowl hangover day. You're listening to the <laughs> Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines on multiple continents today so you don't have to. That's right, Mosh. You are in Israel right now. And I know you'll have some reporting when we discuss what's going on on the ground there. But you basically missed being in the United States for the Super Bowl. The biggest game in the world. (laughs) Uh, Lo and behold, (laughs) it airs in Israel between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. So a challenge uh, to watch the game overnight here. Jill, I recall you telling me you had a big Super Bowl party planned this weekend. Oh, the best laid plans. So we were supposed to just go to a friend's house in the neighborhood. But true to form, basically all the kids were sick. So every family Mm. had a sick child. So we canceled. (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) I was telling you before the pod, if everyone has a sick kid, why not just get all the kids together? I mean, like, why cancel the party? It's not like anyone else could get sick. I guess it's the parents at that point. You don't want to get sick from someone else's kid. When it's your own kid, you're just like, okay, it is what it is. I'm not looking to get sick from, you know, my friend's kid. I totally hear you on that. Totally makes sense. Um, Jill, I'll be here for a few days. We'll discuss in the pod uh, what I'm working on here. We're working on a documentary, but we also have some reporting that we're doing day by day here. Uh, So looking forward to bringing that to the podcast from here the next couple of days. All right. Now to the headlines. Are you ready for some football? The Super Bowl is in the books, the game, the ads, the halftime show. And of course, Taylor Swift. You can't get away from her these days. (laughs) What's next in the Gaza war? Moshe has reporting from on the ground in Israel, where the IDF says it safely rescued two hostages from Rafa in a special nighttime operation. Donald Trump said what about NATO countries that don't pay enough for defense? Meanwhile, some of Joe Biden's allies have come to his defense after the special counsel report called him an elderly man with a bad memory. Jill, you forgot sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man. (laughs) Plus, the S&P 500 reaches a big milestone. But what does that mean for the market? And why a crowd in San Francisco set a self-driving car on fire. Why do they do anything in San Francisco these days, Jill? Plus, if you're in the office today, take a look around. You might have less company. How many of your colleagues might have the quote unquote Super Bowl flu? And Mosh has on this day in history. Jill will bring you the story of the last emperor of China who had to leave the throne at the age of six. It's a fun Jeopardy fact if you ever end up on the show. All right, Super Bowl 58 is now done and dusted. The Kansas City Chiefs have done it again, beating the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday night in overtime in Las Vegas. The final score, 25 to 22. They were the defending champs, beating the Eagles last year and then in 2020, also beating the 49ers. The Chiefs are the first team to win back-to-back titles since the Patriots in 2004. Now to the halftime show, Usher getting rave reviews for his 13-minute performance. He sang a bunch of his biggest hits and brought out some guests. Alicia Keys on one of the coolest pianos I have ever seen. Her came out on guitar along with backup singers and dancers on roller skates. Then there was Little John, Ludacris, and Will I Am reuniting for Yeah!, There was something for everyone. A marching band, as I mentioned, roller skating, outfit changes, And right away, you could tell that Usher was actually singing and dancing. So no lip syncing for him. I thought it was awesome. Now to the commercials, the most expensive advertising on television this year. It's about seven million bucks for 30 seconds of ad time. And add to that, 
whatever the brands are paying celebrities to appear in those commercials. And last night, tons of big names. Michael Sarah in an ad for Sarah V, very creative. Tina Fey starred in an ad for Booking.com. Scarlett Johansson for M&M's. Kate McKinnon with a Pete Davidson cameo for Hellman's Mayo. T-Mobile was out with a star-studded commercial with Zach Braff, Jason Momoa, Jennifer Beals, and others. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, I thought were pretty funny in a State Farm ad. And one of my favorites, the Duncan ad with Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Tom Brady. They formed a boy band and embarrassed Jennifer Lopez. I actually laughed out loud. I thought it was really funny. And in my very informal poll on Instagram, it seems like that Duncan ad was a crowd favorite. But one thing I noticed, I'm not sure if anyone else did, it felt like almost every ad had not only one celebrity, but numerous celebrities. And now to the fans, not necessarily the fans that are in the stands, but everyone watching at home, about 10 million people requested to have today off. About 16.1 million people are expected to come down with what's called the Super Bowl flu, according to Axios. And given that, some lawmakers are actually trying to make the Monday after the Super Bowl an official holiday. Better yet. Just play the Super Bowl on a Saturday. All right, Mosh, now let's get to the Middle East, where you are currently reporting from and where we are closely watching the next steps in the war. Breaking Sunday night, the IDF, Shin Bet, and Israel police have safely rescued two hostages from Hamas captivity in Rafah. It's only the second time Israel has managed to safely rescue hostages from Hamas. The two have been identified as 60-year-old Fernando Marmon and 70-year-old Louis Har. They were kidnapped from a kibbutz on October 7th. The Israeli military says that the men were rescued from a heavily guarded apartment on the second floor of a building in the heart of Rafa, and they are said to be in relatively good condition. And full disclosure, given the time difference, I updated this podcast with that information after Moshe and I recorded the rest of the podcast. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because I want you to know why he is not going to reference that in the next part of our discussion As for the bigger picture in terms of the war, there are indications of an increasing divide between the U.S. and Israel about where the war now in its fifth month goes next. President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held their latest private phone call last night, Biden telling him that Israel should not go ahead with a military operation in the densely populated Gaza border town of Rafah, where those hostages were just rescued from without a credible plan to protect civilians. Now, they spoke after Egypt threatened to suspend its 45-year peace treaty with Israel if Israeli troops are sent into Rafah. Egypt fears that fighting in that border town with Egypt could lead to hundreds of thousands of Palestinians seeking shelter in their country. Now, so far, Egypt has blocked Palestinians from crossing the border. They are concerned that the Palestinians won't go back to Gaza and that they'll bring with them Hamas, which is an offshoot from the terror group in Egypt called the Muslim Brotherhood. Egypt has heavily fortified its border with Gaza, carving out a three-mile buffer zone and erecting concrete walls above and below ground. The Israelis say that sending troops into Rafah is necessary to win the four-month war against the Palestinian militant group Hamas. Israel says they have eliminated 18 of 24 Hamas battalions, but say that Hamas still has most of its remaining fighters in Rafah right now. But also in Rafah, over half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million people, they have fled to Rafah to escape fighting in other areas. 
And they are packed into sprawling tent camps and U.N.-run shelters. The White House says it has warned against the Rafa ground operation under current circumstances, saying that it would be a disaster for civilians. Yeah, they're calling on Israel to find a place for uh, the about 1.3, well, almost 1.4 million civilians uh, to find shelter in a new place. The Israelis say they're developing a plan and are looking to figure out a way to move people over the next couple of weeks. But with so much of Gaza destroyed and uninhabitable at this point, it's unclear where exactly that would be. And the UN here, which would be key to this, is putting up a protest. Now, the Washington Post reports, as you noted, that there is this divide here between Biden and the Israeli prime minister, that folks at the White House are extremely frustrated with the Israeli prime minister, uh, that he's not listening to what the U.S. wants and is calling them out publicly, effectively sticking his finger in the eye of what some people call here Israel's big brother, America both in terms of providing aid and providing guidance. And so the Biden folks who also have their own domestic political issues at hand in Michigan, where they sent a number of top advisors late last week to speak to progressives, Arab and Muslim groups who said they will not support the president in that key battleground state in the election. Right now, you have a situation where Biden is very focused on the domestic politics here and is looking to get this war uh, wound down so it won't serve as a distraction for his reelection effort. More on that in a bit. As far as Rafa is concerned, the Israeli journalists I'm talking to so far who've recently been in Gaza, as well as Israeli government officials, talk about how challenging that operation would be. It is unclear whether Israel will actually move ahead with it, but there is a lot of chatter at this point. And it comes as there have been negotiations over a ceasefire deal, uh, the release of the hostages for a number of Hamas prisoners. The Egyptians right now are really putting pressure on Hamas to agree to a deal to prevent this invasion of Rafah. It does come as the Israelis' top headlines here is the huge discovery they made over the weekend of a Hamas data center, a server farm that was literally built under UNRWA headquarters. That's the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency, the uh, UN saying they had no idea that Hamas had a data center underneath the refugee headquarters. The Israelis replying on Twitter, among other places this weekend, simply by saying, quote, you knew. It comes as UNRWA has already been heavily criticized. There was that major report recently that led UNRWA to fire a dozen employees who were involved in the terrorist attacks on October 7th, hundreds of others in the agency accused of corruption and connections to Hamas. Uh, Jill, I should note, I am here shooting a documentary of Formo News about what's going on in the war and what comes next, meeting with the Israeli defense minister later today. So I'll have details on that conversation coming up, as well as a former Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, and a Palestinian authority leader. So we'll have a lot in the documentary, and we'll try to bring them to you uh, bit by bit on the Instagram feed newsletter and on this podcast. So Moshe, nothing can, of course, replace on the ground reporting. After spending a few days in Israel, any takeaways? What is the mood there from from talking to Israelis? From the first moments you arrive here, you realize how much this is still a nation four months in, more than four months in, a nation in mourning, a nation traumatized, a nation that is literally counting the days. Uh, They have counts and monitors up across uh, the country of the number of days the hostages have been held in the Gaza Strip. Upon landing at the main international airport here, one of the first things you see is the signs, the pictures of all the hostages, all the remaining hostages, as you enter the arrivals hall before you even get your luggage. And so it really is a country that's traumatized to a person. They speak about the attack in personal terms. They knew somebody who was there. They know somebody who lost somebody. They know somebody who had a hostage. They work with somebody like that. I know they were using the comparison early, but they still use it. It Is this nation's 9-11, this feeling of a loss of security, the murder, the rape, the kidnapping, 
no matter how left wing, and I've talked to some folks who are very left wing, who are very in the peace movement, very against Netanyahu, the one thing they all agree on is that this war is necessary. The elimination of Hamas is necessary, even if the world, even if allies are telling them to wrap it up. Uh, they view it here as an existential fight. And it very much struck me that they're fighting a different war than the world is observing, right? The world's observing it in one way. And for Israelis, it's very personal and very different, particularly when it comes to the civilian casualty toll in Gaza. You know, we've talked about uh, the 27,000 dead in Gaza, about two thirds of them women and children. Israelis say they're empathetic with the civilians, but ultimately say the blame lies on Hamas for starting the war. And as far as they're concerned, a terrorist group that runs Gaza and engaged in the horrific murders and acts of October 7th can no longer be tolerated right across the border. So even left-wingers here, again, who foresee a two-state solution, very much want to live side by side with Palestinians, work with Palestinians, say Israel needs to win this war. You know, I struck Jill. It gave me memories of America post 9-11 watching the various cable news networks here. By the way, it's a country of about 9 or 10 million people. They have four 24-hour news channels for a country of 10 million people. It's a very news-obsessed culture here. And you turn them on, and several of them have Israeli flags waving graphics in the corner that say, United, we will win. Uh, And it reminds me of the cable networks, and I think Fox kept their flag in the U.S., who did the same thing with the U.S. flag after 9-11. So as far as the Israelis are concerned here, Uh, until the hostages are home and uh, Hamas is eliminated, the mission is not accomplished. And several of them told me I was at a rally on Saturday night. You know, if somebody told America, get over 9-11 and stop doing what you're doing a couple months after 9-11, what would you have said to them? And that's the terms they really put it in. And and another person I spoke to here said over the weekend, it was the 127th day of the war. And they said, you know, for Israelis, it's not October 7th, it's October 127th. They're still living it. They're still traumatized by it. And as far as they're concerned, you know, if they have to go it alone here to uh, accomplish security uh, on their borders, uh, they will do so. Moshe, you mentioned that you went to a couple of large rallies, including, I know, an anti-government one on Saturday night. What were the people there telling you? Yeah, it's interesting because at the same time, the current prime minister, Netanyahu, if you believe the opinion polls here, has an approval level of anywhere from 18 to 20-ish percent. So only one out of five Israelis approve of the prime minister who was in charge as this attack happened, uh, who's in charge of the war effort. And so I was at a protest with about 20,000 people uh, Saturday night in uh, Tel Aviv who are calling for his resignation, calling for immediate elections. And this is something you didn't see in the first couple months of the war. You know, as I mentioned, the graphics on the TV channels, which is United, we will win. And people very much felt like no matter how they feel personally about the prime minister, that they ultimately, you know, shouldn't be protesting publicly. It is a very vibrant democracy here. And they said, you know, at this point, we are going to get out there. And I said, well, so are you unhappy with the way he's engaging in the war? And they're like, no, we're fine with the war effort. Frankly, somebody else you know, would be probably doing the same thing. We just don't like him personally. And when I ask, who do you want in charge? They're like, we don't know. We just don't like him. Uh, we don't like Netanyahu. And you know, so that's interesting to watch. I asked if there's momentum there. And they don't believe they have momentum. You know, Many Israelis in the latest polls came out uh, here over the weekend. I still believe in this unity government. Effectively, what happened after October 7th is Netanyahu invited the opposition. It'd sort of be like in a unique arrangement. If, you know, after 9-11, if uh, George W. Bush had invited Al Gore and Democrats to be in a war cabinet with him, that's what's happened here. Uh, and that continues to be the case. There's also a separate rally in support of the hostages. The hostage families uh, have a major rally in Tel Aviv. They actually have camped out in a square in tents on a daily basis, but they have big rallies every weekend. And, you know, they're calling for Israel to, quote, pay any price to bring home their family members and loved ones. And that includes releasing literally every Hamas member, uh, no matter what crime they committed, out of prison. Now, the majority of Israelis don't support that. But, 
you do see gradual increasing support to get those hostages home, that for many Israelis, this is untenable. Uh, one other thing that we're talking about, and we'll be talking about further with officials here, and we're going to head down to the south, uh, near Gaza, is post-war planning. Israel still doesn't have an official one, and that is extremely frustrating to the U.S. right now. They are getting their sharp criticism for that. But it is a very precarious domestic situation here because for many Israelis, as I described it, they're traumatized. and They're not quite ready to think about a Palestinian state or anything like that, given what unfolded here. Netanyahu also has a coalition of some right wingers who don't want any semblance of that. And his government collapses. It's a fascinating thing to watch, Jill, because as we watch these headlines unfold, you know, Biden has a domestic struggle with his progressives and the left wing. And so he's got two messages as far as foreign policy and a domestic audience. In Israel, it's the same thing. Then yeah, I was speaking to a foreign audience and a domestic audience, including a coalition of right wingers. The Arab countries, extremely complex. Privately, uh, they're telling folks here, they don't want Hamas around. They don't want Iranian influence. And so Israel, if you're doing this, please finish them off. But by the way, publicly, we're going to criticize you for it because our people uh, hate what they're seeing and are very anti-Israel. So you're getting multiple messages privately and publicly from all of these countries. And so what we're trying to do here is uh, help explain all of that. But keep in mind that you know, no matter what country you're talking about, no matter what official, many of the things they're saying, there are multiple levels to why they're saying it. And it all comes as they're all trying to figure out what comes next. And that's one of the questions we're going to try to answer while we're here. And Moshe, obviously, you can't get into Gaza right now. Uh, who are you talking to on the Palestinian side? So I'm excited today to be talking to a member of Fatah, the main party that runs the Palestinian Authority today, about uh, the future. Their, their leader, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, in the West Bank is extremely unpopular. And the person I'm talking to today actually uh, was told by Abbas 30 years ago that he was the next generation of leadership. Uh, he says, I'm now in our, my 50s. My colleagues are in their 60s. We were once told we were the next generation, and the last generation never left. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about the Palestinian political situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Palestinian Authority, Hamas, their goals and what they're taking away uh, from the war and what reform looks like, what leadership looks like, uh, and how the Palestinians are communicating with their Arab allies across the region as well. Yeah, we thought that our leaders were old with uh, Trump <laughs> at 77 and Biden at 80, 81. They've got nothing on Mahmoud Abbas at 88. Yeah, he's about to turn 89, actually. Uh, and someone noted to me, it's incredible because he smokes multiple cigarettes a day at 88 years old, and he's still trucking. All right, well, we'll look forward to all of that. Plenty of news coming up, but for now, let's get a word from our sponsors. Yeah, let's welcome our newest sponsor, Jill Goodchop. They offer customizable boxes of high-quality meat, seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. We just got our first shipment of Goodchop. We uh, ordered steak chicken, and salmon. They're all vacuum sealed, frozen at peak freshness. You can choose from a whole variety of high quality cuts, grass fed ribeye, filet mignon, free range organic chicken, a thick cut bacon, as well as a whole bunch of seafood options. As I mentioned, salmon, shrimp, scallops, a whole bunch of options. Now in our house, we're all about sustainable, organic, antibiotic free meat and fish, and they offer a number of those options. A couple of things you get with Good Shop, you get convenience, you get quality, they source exclusively from American farms and fisheries. They support local family farms, independent ranchers, and they're offering the Mo News audience now in our first week with Good Shop an incredible offer. Head over to goodchop.com, G O O D C H O P, goodchop.com slash Mo News 120, and use the code Mo News 120 to get $120 off your first four boxes of Good Shop. Again, the code is Mo News 120. 
over at goodchop.com slash monews120. Again, $120 off your first four boxes. All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. And Mosh, of course, on this podcast, we're always talking about health trends and food trends, and it can be very difficult to get all of your nutrients. Well, one way to get all the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 Powder. I've been using it for months. It is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy and quick and lets you get on with your day knowing that you have gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription. Or if you prefer, you could just try it one time for just a month. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. All right, now to the speed read. Let's start with a health update from Lloyd Austin from NBC News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was taken to the hospital Sunday afternoon for a bladder issue. The Defense Department said in a statement that he transferred his duties to Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks at about 4.55 p.m. on Sunday. The White House, Joint Chiefs, and Congress have been notified of his condition. Austin was still in the hospital as of Sunday evening. Now, back in December, he underwent a minimally invasive procedure for his prostate cancer. He later revealed he was hospitalized for several days when the procedure resulted in a bladder infection and other abdominal problems. He publicly apologized this month for his delay in telling the White House about his hospitalization and said that the Pentagon had introduced procedures to ensure timely notification in the future. From CNN, Houston police say a woman in a trench coat armed with a long rifle and accompanied by a young child entered Pastor Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church on Sunday afternoon and began firing two off-duty law enforcement officers, a Houston police officer and an agent with the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission, engaged and struck the woman who died on the scene. The woman was roughly 30 to 35 years old, according to the police chief. Police say a five-year-old was hit and is in critical condition at a local hospital. They say the woman had also threatened that she had a bomb, but authorities searched her vehicle and a backpack she was wearing and did not find any explosives. The police chief says she was also spraying some type of substance on the ground. Lakewood Church is a mega church about six miles from downtown Houston. 
At a news conference, Osteen, the pastor, said that the shooting took place in between services, noting that the timing likely helped prevent further injuries and damage. And now from The Wall Street Journal, former President Trump ramped up his attacks on NATO on Saturday, claiming that he suggested to a foreign leader that he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want to member countries that he views as not spending enough on their own defense. Trump recounted a story Saturday night where he claims that an unidentified NATO country leader had confronted him over his threats not to defend countries who don't pay at least 2% of their GDP into NATO. Trump said during a rally at Coastal Carolina University that, quote, I said, you didn't pay. You're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. Again, he is basically saying that he was talking to the leader of a country that is in NATO who said to him hypothetically, what would happen if I didn't pay my 2%? And he said, well, I would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want. That's Those are his words, a.k.a. invade your country. Now, to be clear, there's no evidence that this conversation actually happened. Each of 30 NATO members, they have a recommended guideline that they spend at least 2% of their gross domestic product on defense. More than half have met or come close to that goal as of last year. Many member countries have increased their spending in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A Biden White House spokesperson saying that Trump's comments encouraging invasions of our closest allies by murderous regimes is appalling and unhinged. The head of NATO said Sunday, quote, it puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. Under Article 5, if a NATO ally is attacked, other member countries of NATO consider it, quote, an armed attack against all members and will take the actions it deems necessary to assist the ally attacked. Now, since NATO's founding in 1949, the clause has been invoked only once on September 12th, 2001, after the terrorist attacks in the United States the day before. In May of 2017, Trump initially did not affirm that the United States was committed to Article 5, but then reversed course two weeks later. Trump broadly has expressed skepticism about NATO, and he even discussed pulling out of NATO. Yeah, he's never been a big fan. He's always challenged them. Uh, He's told versions of the story before. This is the first time he told the story uh, in a way where he said, I'll literally tell Russia to do whatever the hell they want with you, uh, which, again, is concerning to a number of those countries. Trump, uh, for many years, has been about fairness, uh, and he doesn't like that the U.S. puts more into NATO uh, financially than some of these other smaller countries, a number of them still not giving the recommended 2%. It's not a mandatory 2%, but a recommended 2%. Jill, this all came as we watched an interview with Vladimir Putin and Tucker Carlson Late last week, uh, the Tucker Carlson interview, the first Western journalist or commentator, I should say, that he's spoken to in a long time. The main message from Putin to Americans was there's no point in helping Ukraine anymore. Stop sending them money. Stop sending them weapons. If you really want to end this war, just stop helping Ukraine. It'll be over in a few weeks. Asked by Carlson whether Russia has achieved its aims, he says, no, we still have to denazify. That's the term he's been using for two years, uh, Ukraine. And when asked whether he was satisfied with the territory he currently has in Ukraine, uh, upon Russia's invasion, they've uh, occupied and taken over about 20% of Ukraine. Putin effectively answered, not yet. Uh, We haven't finished, quote, denazifying the country. There's a pretty soft interview from Carlson. At one point, I think Putin went more than 30 minutes doing a history lesson going back to the 8th century of his version of Russian history and world history. 
Though I should add at the end of the interview, Carlson did raise the possibility, ask Putin whether he's open to a prisoner exchange uh, to release Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. He's an American. Carlson noted he's obviously not a spy. Putin said uh, without evidence, no, he totally is a spy, but I am open to a deal and I think we can achieve it. Uh, Jill, I got a lot of questions about this on the Instagram account, people criticizing the interview. You know, my issue with it is not that Tucker interviewed Putin. I think everyone should interview Putin. I think my issue was that Tucker claimed that no one else is trying to interview Putin because everyone's so pro-Ukraine, which is simply not the truth. Even the Kremlin disagreed with him on that. Putin's just said no uh, to uh, journalists, especially those who he thinks would challenge him. And ultimately, the interview, you know, was sort of a free pass. At points, Tucker was giggling uh, during the interview. And so I think the issue to take with the interview is not that he interviewed him, but the the way it was conducted. Yeah, most Christiane Amanpour uh, from CNN, she had tweeted, does Tucker really think we journalists haven't been trying to interview President Putin every day since his full-scale invasion of Ukraine? It's absurd. We'll continue to ask for an interview just as we had for years now. All right. Sticking with politics from Fox News, allies of President Biden defended the commander in chief this weekend following the special counsel report on classified documents that characterized Biden as, quote, an elderly man with a poor memory. Biden campaign co-chair Mitch Landrieu telling NBC he is smart. He's on his game, adding that the report by special counsel Robert Hur is, quote, just a bucket of BS that is so deep your boots will get stuck. Moshe, I think I'm going to start using that expression. BS, that's so deep, <laughs> your boots will get stuck. Mitch Landrieu, we should note, from Louisiana, where they're uh, very good at those turns of phrase. So he was among the people who were out on TV over the weekend. The report, which came out on Thursday, described the president's memory as hazy, fuzzy, faulty, and poor, and suggested that Biden did not remember when his son, Beau Biden, died. The report ultimately came to the conclusion that Biden willingly took home classified documents after being vice president, but said that they weren't sure whether a jury would find Biden guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, so they decided not to charge him with a crime. Biden's personal attorney slammed the report over the weekend, saying that, quote, along with the legal conclusion comes this flood of characterizations, factual misstatements, pejorative comments about the president that are inconsistent with DOJ policy and norms. Yeah, they felt that her went overboard, uh, that her who's a, a Republican, was a U.S. attorney under Trump, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why Merrick Garland appointed him uh, to investigate the president. They wanted no semblance of partisanship in there, and they ended up getting the reverse. They got a Republican who they feel uh, went overboard with his report and added stuff in there that was superfluous and political. Again, using the phrase here, the White House feels unnecessarily that Biden uh, would come across in a trial that they're not proposing as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with poor memory. Uh, Jill, it made for a terrible week for Biden, an issue he's already vulnerable on, right? He's 81 years old. He had that no good, very bad press conference that he, they called last second Thursday night where they tried to fight back. And he ended up making an additional gaffe calling the Egyptian president, the president of Mexico. It led over the weekend to a number of liberals online, a columnist, commentators, some in the party to say that Biden needs to hang it up. Uh, for the most part, you're not seeing major Democratic leaders come out and saying that yet, but you are starting to see real concern within the party, uh, now still about 10 months from the election, about whether he can make it there, whether they can win with him. You know, Biden has said that, you know, he's beaten Trump once and he's the guy to beat Trump again. Biden's very defensive on that front. The question is, what will he do? Uh, right now, it appears a hell no, as far as Biden's concerned in terms of him getting out. The primaries are ongoing. It's really too late at this point for there to be a competition when it comes to the primaries. 
But one thing people mentioned this weekend, Jill, the convention is six months out. And remember, Democratic and Republican conventions until the 60s, even early 70s, uh, were a place where they decided on the nominee before the modern primary process. So some people are saying, you know, maybe in six months from now, Biden should actually toss it over to the convention, let it do what it originally did. Actually, this would be the first time you have a competitive convention of this sort since 1968, notably Jill, the last time a Democratic president chose not to run for re-election as Lyndon Johnson at that time. Now, other stuff was going on in 68. RFK was assassinated, a huge fight over Vietnam, turned out to be that mess of a convention in Chicago for the Democrats. Where is the convention again this year, Jill? Chicago. Interesting parallels on multiple fronts here. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, we're talking about this again in early February, where the party is, where he is, what the state of domestic and international politics are come the convention this summer. From USA Today, the S&P 500 has hit yet another milestone this year, ending above 5,000 for the first time on Friday. It is good news for Americans' 401ks, which are heavily invested in stocks, and it comes just three weeks after the index notched its first record close since January of 2022. The market's performance has been bolstered by signs that the Fed has ended its rate hikes and might actually cut rates this year. Excitement around artificial intelligence advancements has also pushed up companies' stock prices. But while the 5,000 milestone is making some major headlines, it's a remarkable achievement and a sign of where the economy is. Experts say it may not sustain that level for very long. The first few months of an election year are, quote, pretty choppy for markets, according to a number of economists. Similar milestones in the past have been followed by dips. So I don't know what to tell you folks today about how to trade in the market. Talk to your financial advisors and the people who know. But it's an important symbolic event. It's a sign of where the market has really gone in the past couple of years. But we'll see if it can sustain itself in 2024 with the election going on. From Reuters, a crowd vandalized a Waymo self-driving vehicle and set it on fire by throwing a firework inside of that car in San Francisco on Saturday. This isn't the first time that people have attacked a self-driving car, but the severity of the incident could illustrate growing public hostility towards self-driving cars following a pedestrian dragging accident last year that involved another self-driving vehicle that was operated by General Motors brand Cruise. Waymo is owned by Google's parent company and said that someone in the crowd broke a car window and threw a firework inside on Saturday night, setting that vehicle on fire. Waymo didn't say if there was an actual incident that caused the crowd to attack the car. The company said the vehicle wasn't transporting any riders and no injuries have been reported. Last week, a driverless Waymo car collided with a cyclist in San Francisco, causing minor injuries, and the incident is being reviewed by the state's auto regulator. Back on October 2nd, Jill, you just mentioned that incident of the cruise vehicle, the competitor to Waymo, hitting a pedestrian uh, and dragging them 20 feet. Uh, California then subsequently suspended the company's driverless testing license, and then Cruise ended up pulling all of its U.S. self-driving vehicles from testing. Jill, knowing some people who work in that industry, they like to say that self-driving cars are much safer overall than uh, cars that you and I drive. They note that there's more than 2 million accidents a year in the human-driven cars. More than 40,000 Americans die every year in car accidents. Uh, but obviously, self-driving cars, the new kids on the block here, getting a lot of scrutiny. Uh, and so every uh, minor incident here causing issues, and they have caused huge traffic issues in San Francisco when uh, their software glitches. Uh, and of course, there's no one to drive the car because uh, it's a computer. So certainly uh, some kinks they have to work out before they're deployed more wide scale, which was the hope uh, already in the Bay Area. 
I mean, I guess better than attacking a car with a person in it, but (laughs) (laughs) what? (laughs) No, and you've seen those incidents, too, of, like, the little robots that deliver food. Like, people are so mean to those, like, little robots. What did they ever do to you? Exactly. What did did they do to you, people? (laughs) I get it if they, like, you're the pedestrian and they, like, knocked you over on your bicycle. But, like, to stick a firework in the Waymo car? Come on, San Francisco. You could do better. At least I thought you could do better. (laughs) And finally, some good news from the BBC. The Frenchman who spent eight years of his life building that 23-foot model of the Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks. We told you about him. He has now been given the world record by Guinness in a huge (sighs) reversal. (laughs) There is justice in this world, Moshe. (laughs) Richard Plow. Congratulations. Okay, so that tower, if you remember, had been disqualified on Wednesday for being made out of the wrong type of matches. Guinness said on Thursday that it was just too harsh at first and congratulated model enthusiast Richard Plowd on his record. Plowd said this week has been an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> he spent eight years of his life building this model Eiffel Tower in his home. As we told you, his wife gave up her living room for eight years for him to build this. So I imagine it's been a roller coaster for both of them. Told you're using the wrong type of matchsticks because he got these special order ones from the brand without the top of the matchstick so he could make it in a cleaner way. Guinness saying, technically, we have a rule that they have to be commercially available. Uh, Then Guinness, after I think all the pushback they got, said, "Okay, fine, fine, fine. We were too harsh. They said that his achievement was, quote, truly officially amazing. And so his 706,000 match (laughs) Eiffel Tower, where he used 23 kilos of glue, uh, he helps to put on display in Paris this summer where they happen to have the Olympics. So if you head out there, you can see the real Eiffel Tower. And you can see Richard's model Eiffel Tower. And he is now the official holder of the Guinness Book of World Record. Jill, someone else is probably going to win a Guinness Book of World Records for something on a completely different front. Uh, the number of straight shows at Madison Square Garden, Billy Joel. I just said he performed <laughs> over the weekend. And Jill, we had talked in a previous pod that you had never seen Billy Joel despite like 100 plus shows at Madison Square Garden. I understand you have news on that front. Okay, so for the record, I have seen Billy Joel. I actually have seen him at Madison Square Garden, but not part of this residency. I see. Which okay. he's had for 10 years or so. So I have been dying to go. And yes. You saw him way back in the day. Yes, I yes. saw him many years ago. But yes, my husband surprised me. Uh, basically was like, pack your bags. We're going to the city. Uh, we got married right near Madison Square Garden, actually. So we went to the show. We spent the night at the hotel where we got married. It was like a 24-hour little staycation, um, and it was awesome. I will say, though, in his defense, he actually said that he had these tickets a really long time ago. I know that we talked about it, and we're kind of like pressuring him on the podcast to to get the tickets. (laughs) He said he was actually annoyed because he's like, I had the tickets. And you and Moshe were like, come on, Michael, get some tickets. And he's like, Michael, we we will not question you on this pod ever again. But he was laughing because he's like, everyone's going to think I just kind of got like peer pressured into doing it because of the podcast. But no, this has been in the works for a while. All right. There you go. Breaking news here as we end the speed read today. Uh, Let's head to On This Day in History. Honest Abe, born today, 1809, Abraham Lincoln, would have been 215 years old today uh, on this February 12th. On this day in 1909, the NAACP was founded. Uh, It's one of the oldest and most influential civil rights organizations here in the U.S. And then to the story I teased earlier, 
on this date in 1912, the last emperor of China, Pu Yi, the boy emperor, uh, who became emperor at the age of two in 1908, uh, on this day in 1912, was forced to abdicate at the age of six. He would come back for a couple of weeks at age 11 as emperor and then pushed out again. He was the last emperor of China for effectively imperial China, lasted 2,000 years, and he would be the last emperor. Uh, he would end up being put in place for a certain bit during World War II by the Japanese invaders and then was convicted as a war criminal, served 10 years in prison. But anyway, if you're ever asked who the last emperor of China was, the boy emperor, Puyi. And we end here with a couple musical items. Turning 100 years old today, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, you might recognize it from the United Airlines commercials from back in the day. It's one of his best known compositions, Jill, as a uh, aspiring piano player. As a small child from age 5 to 12, Gershwin uh, was one of my favorite composers. So point of personal privilege today. Uh, happy 100th birthday to Rhapsody in Blue. And on this day, 53 years ago, as we talk about all the Super Bowl commercials from last night. The Coca-Cola jingle, I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke, began airing on radio stations across the U.S. It was actually previously a hit song, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. Uh, And then McCann Erickson, the ad agency, adapted it for Coca-Cola. It became one of the most famous ads of all time. At the time, the most expensive commercial of all time uh, in inflation-adjusted dollars would have cost several million dollars. Uh, And Jill, if you've ever seen Mad Men, they effectively intimate in the last episode that Don Draper, the character in the show, came up with the ad uh, in the way that they end that show. Have I ever seen Mad Men? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. I hope I didn't spoil it for anybody who somehow... You know, we're, we're, I feel like once you're more than a decade removed from a finale of a show, like you can spoil it without warning, right? I think so, Moshe. I was going to say like two weeks removed, you could probably <laughs> just give a little spoiler alert. <laughs> if if we upset you and you're somehow binging Mad Men 12 years later, I apologize. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It'll help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And uh, Mo News Premium now has group and family plans. We initially announced it to premium members over the weekend, but up to six members of your family, friends, you know, colleagues. Uh, we have group plans over at Mo News Premium. Uh, you can add additional people at a discount. So check that out over at mo.news slash premium. It gives you access to our uh, extra members only Instagram account where we answer your questions. I give you exclusive coverage, including on this trip that I'm taking on right now, as well as weekend news coverage, as well as our premium podcast. So go check out the Mo News individual plan, the family plan that we just announced over at mo.news slash premium. All right, everyone. Good luck nursing your Super Bowl flu today. We'll <laughs> see you back here tomorrow. A lot of people are going to recover tomorrow, Jill. It's a 24-hour <laughs> thing, I hear. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.